Hello and welcome to the Femcyclopedia. This episode looks at mob boss Stephanie St. Clair and also courageous member of the SOE, Violet Zabo. Um, both Joe and I get a little bit teary over that one. As usual, there is a yard order nine for you to uh, have a listen to. And if you'd like to follow us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, we're on all three under the Femcyclopedia. And if you have any women you think we should um, have on one of our episodes as a suggestion for us to look at, please do drop us a line through one of those mediums. Okay then, enjoy! Here we are today. I have it for is you today. <laughs> well done. Yes, uh, pray tell. I have for you Stephanie Sinclair. Okay. I'm so thrilled to have found out about this woman. So uh, I've never heard of her. Well, that is a good start. Um, why should she be in the Fem Encyclopedia? Pray tell. I will. I'm going to quote you a book which is by a lady called Shirley Stewart. And it is called The World of Stephanie St. Clair. Sounds pretty glamorous. It is pretty glamorous. So the quote is, In 1923, with $10,000 in seed money, Stephanie St. Clair launched and ran a highly lucrative policy bank in Harlem that earned a quarter of a million dollars a year. To this day, she remains the only black female gangster to run a numbers racket of that size. Brilliant. Is that, is that all? Well done, Stephanie. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Bye. Well done. Oh, no, 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 no. So, um, Stephanie St. Clair was born in 1897 on the island of Guadeloupe. She was just 13 when she arrived in the United States. The reason for her travelling at such a young age is unclear, due to, again, a lack of documentation. Mm-hmm. Um, and add to this the fact that St. Clair would alter the truth to suit her purposes. Good girl. So, on various different documents, she would give her age, uh, whatever she fancied on the day. Oh, if only we could still do that. Uh Um, And so, uh, you essentially get a very sketchy set of facts, in inverted commas, to go on. What we do know is that when she was born, the enslaved people of the French colonies had been free for 50 years. Um, And I think that what really comes across in Shirley Stewart's book is and it's called The World of Stephanie St. Clair and it's very much the kind of context in which she lives rather than a sort of traditional biography but it's really interesting though because um, it kind of explains why she had the kind of personality that meant she was able to be a gangster in Harlem Um, and it kind of has a lot to do with her with her her background Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, one of the most interesting observations that Shirley Stewart makes is that St Clair's ancestors were well documented in history she says that Guadeloupe's enslaved population can be traced back to West Africa specifically the Bight of Benin and Senegambia um, and she said when looking at St Clair who has an incredibly strong sense of self-worth Stewart says, and as we've sometimes discussed before, that women in certain West African states were active participants in their community. Mm -hmm. And she also asserts that while only 10% of captives leaving Africa came from Upper Guinea, Senegambia, Sierra Leone and the Windward Coast, these accounted, and this is really interesting, 
for over 40% of revolts. Mm. She also says that the larger the number of women on board the slave ships, the more likely they would be to be a mutiny. Wow. That's the kind of research yeah, that yeah, she's yeah. done and that's what she's claiming. Gosh. Now, um, it's an interesting aside which Stuart says contributes to St. Clair's agency and sense of herself. One of the things, one of the reasons that it might be, she said, is that um, the the white men on board the ship thought that the women had no agency, right. so didn't shackle them in the same way, um, and perhaps were behaving in a way where they were letting things slip, letting of things course, slide, yeah. and so and they were basically underestimating the women that, that they had on More board. More fool them. Well, indeed. Anyway, back to St. Clair's early life. Stuart says that St. Clair's father... Amedy, Amedy, A-M-E-D-I-E, it's an unusual name, mm -hmm. was probably an artisan and either born free or was freed as a child. Uh, her mother is called Anselin um, and together they belonged to an elite section of society. Sadly, her father dies when she's about 12 and we think that this leads her to travel to um, America and Stuart believes that her family bribed officials in order for her to be able to Right. safe passage um, so St Clair would have been processed on Ellis Island and this could have taken up to a month and she then apparently travelled to Canada where she had employment with a household um, and at such a young age she'd already been exposed to quite a lot of adult life you know she's, yeah. she's had to be very adult mm. for her age um, the dangers that she would have faced are that many young women in her position ended up in prostitution. Um, she seems to have escaped this, although there were some sort of rumours that possibly when she was um, working as a, domest a domestic that she was possibly raped by the men that she worked for, but Stuart can't find any evidence right. of that, although yeah, other yeah, people yeah. have claimed that happened. Stuart does make mention of the fact that many people suggested that St Clair was involved in prostitution, but again, we can find no evidence for this. Anyway, the climate towards immigrants is changing at this time, and it may well be that this encourages Stephanie St Clair at age 18 to marry. So I think what was happening was that... Um, a little bit almost like now with some of the things we're facing that things are changing and to kind of secure your position you decide to marry yeah yeah anyway it's now uh 1915 he was from dominica um shirley stewart claims that they had a baby but that the baby died again there are no clear records for this um even st Clair and her husband george refer to themselves interchangeably as single or married so again, when, they when are depending. Yeah. yeah that, I mean, the facts are. I do that are, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> the facts are very murky. Possibly this was a business marriage. Who knows? Um, so you have shifting facts: a city afraid of immigrants, racism, and an elite woman now occupying a working class space. She's come from this society where she was kind of sort yeah. of upper class, and now she's. It's 1920. You've got. Pro, you know, prohibition comes into effect, and oh, she's dear. now occupying this. I know, what a drag. Imagine oh, us, Lord, Lord. Anyway. gin all round. <laughs> so we're unsure of exactly what St Clair was doing during this time, but in 1923, she opens her bank in inverted commas with ten thousand dollars. Now, what it could be is that when she comes to Harlem, she could be working for people. Um, 
and she finds out how to run the business and then she sets up her her own business um stuart says that she may have had some savings from her domestic service but she also still quite a lot of money back then yeah she also believes that st Clair probably worked for a policy banker as a clerk or a bookkeeper um and that that's why she was immediately so successful she just copied what what they'd been doing i still think that's an incredible amount of money back then I I, how long would it take me to save ten thousand pounds you barely save 10p love anyway um she faced the double disadvantage as you can imagine of racism and sexism she's an educated woman a beautiful woman who is um unlikely to get the job that she deserves she's come from this elite society she's she's not going to succeed in the same way in in america um and all around her is lies and corruption. And uh, as much by those in charge of society as it is in the mobsters. So her kind of moral compass is completely, you know, yeah. sort of shifting like everything else, like Indeed. her age and her marital status. <laughs> <laughs> so in Harlem at this time, black people owned less than 20% of businesses. And those that they did own were often barber shops, beauty shops and cleaners. Right. Although policy banking was illegal... It was non-violent and it yielded a high return. So policy banking... Yeah, I was going to say, what is policy banking? I'm going to do my very best. Go on, mathematician of the year. Oh my God. So anyway, it's a mixture of investing and gambling, including a numbers game. So, legally, black people were not allowed to invest. I mean, I'm shocked, but I'm not. Um... (laughs) So the numbers game was popular with a complete cross-section of Harlem society. Some say the history of the game goes back to the 1860s um, and it's linked to race tracks and it's something to do with you pick three digits and it's something to do with racing numbers and if they match. You can tell you and I have never gambled. (laughs) With my life at times, but not much else. Um, So... uh, you, you don't pay any tax on this money. Right. And it's a little bit like the lottery today. If you won, it changed your life. Yeah. So you've got this um, environment where you can't legally invest money. You know, it's very hard to make money. You know. Um, why not? Why not? It's important to note that during the early 1920s, it was not part of an organised crime structure. Okay. So anyone could set up in the numbers business. However, once the white gangsters realised the volume of penny bets, they wanted a piece of the action. Previously, they'd completely overlooked it because people were making, poor people in Harlem, yeah. making penny bets. And they're like, whatever. But if there's millions like the of Wolf those... The Wolf of Wall Street. I, I couldn't watch that film. I've watched the first bit and I've got well, He does a, a similar thing, I okay. think. He does small uh, numbers on small investments, but when you add them all together, it becomes huge. So, then obviously in 1929 the stock market crashes and white mobsters see their profits go down. And one white mobster is called Dutch Schultz. Nice Of name. course he is. And um, he's a mobster with uh, political connections at City Hall and he wants control of the Harlem numbers racket. He starts putting pressure on the numbers runners. So there'd be people going to yeah. from the racetracks and with chits of paper and oh. stuff like this. Um the guys with the slips are the numbers runners. So St. Clair starts taking out adverts in a Harlem newspaper, essentially becoming an activist. So her adverts that she takes out range from housing issues to uh, police talking about openly about police brutality. She informs on the rights of citizens um, and she starts uh, receiving death threats. Oh, well, yeah. And this is the kind of things that she will say in her 
adverts. Now, dear reader, please don't give me any more of your sympathy. I don't need it, for instead of it being a help to me, it is becoming a burden. If you use your brain more and your tongue less, you will find out that you need the sympathy more than I do. And I bet that's exactly how she sounded when she read it did, out. Did you like that? I was channelling her. I, 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 I could was feel, feeling her. I could feel so Harlem Monster <laughs> from Guadeloupe <laughs> as you were speaking. Method. Yeah, method. I've been doing. incredible. <laughs> so she warns a certain gentleman um, to stop annoying her as she doesn't need another sweetheart. So she's, she's constantly taking out these adverts telling people... Police brutality. These are the problems with yeah. the housing. Stop being, stop having sympathy for me. I know I'm getting death threats, and she's then sending out one to one guy saying, "I don't need another sweetheart." Like, stop. <laughs> I mean, there's just she's brilliant. audaciously brilliant. Um, so December the twenty eighth, nineteen twenty nine, is her first arrest, and she spends eight months in prison. She ac- accuses police of robbing her, um, and based on her accusations, ultimately eighteen police officers are suspended. Wow. This whole affair unravels to a point where the mayor is forced to resign. So how do you go from being a, you know, a woman in jail a- accused of something to then yeah. to then bringing down half of the yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the system that is keeping you there? Unbelievable. She um, continues to be involved in activism and Schultz continues to squeeze the numbers racket and this has been going on for five years now. Schultz is generating income from Harlem and taking it outside of Harlem and she cannot stand this because she's always been very, you know, for the people. Um, She continually refuses to work for or with him and he keeps putting pressure on her to the point where on page one of the newspaper which was called the New York Amsterdam News, she declares, I'm not afraid of Dutch Schultz or any other man living. Nice. He'll never touch me. Wowzers. He takes out a contract. <laughs> God knows how this woman sleeps at night. I know, right? <laughs> I mean, she's brazen and I love her, but I don't... I, yeah. She apparently goes into stores alone, um, smashes plate glass cases uh, destroys betting slips and leaves so where he's putting pressure on her that's how she um, oh, okay. gets him back but she's literally just just by herself she doesn't have any protection she, well, it, does, it doesn't sound like she does she sounds kind of crazy she sounds kind of in crazy in a good way cool crazy yeah yeah um Due to infighting Dutch Schultz is shot on the 24th of October 1935 and St Clair sends a telegram to his bedside which reads <sighs> So you sow, so shall ye reap. <laughs> it was around 1932 that um, a gentleman called Sufil Abdul Hamid first surfaces in Harlem. He's a very educated man. He's the leader of the Negro Industrial Clerical Alliance. Um, Hamid and Sinclair are both ambitious, passionate black nationalists. Um, he's charged with starting the Harlem riots in 1935. Not surprisingly, they're married in August 1936. Um, was she still married yes. to George? Quite possibly, though, who knows? Shifting sands. Yeah. <laughs> Depending Absolutely. on which piece of paper you read, maybe yeah. she was, maybe she wasn't. Maybe she was, you know, still 19 at the time, according mm. to her, so. Sadly, uh, this uh, relationship deteriorates in less than two years, and he is apparently abusive to her. Um, she fires three shots at him on January the 18th. Just something to do, or...? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, oh, yeah, this is the bit I love. Uh, all over a woman called Madame Fufutam. Excusez-moi. 
Madame Fu Futam. Hang on, is Fu Futam all one surname or is it like? I think it's like Madame Fu Futam. Okay, I think I don't know. So a trial takes place, and it turns out that Hamid Sufil Abdul Hamid is actually called Eugene Brown, (laughs) and he's married to someone else. And uh, Uh, Madame Fu Futam is actually called Dorothy Matthews. Brilliant. <laughs> Love it. So, um, March 21st, 1938, St. Clair is sentenced and Hamid goes on to marry Mary Dorothy or Miss Futam or whatever she's called. <laughs> but shortly <laughs> afterwards, he's killed in a plane crash. Oh. St. Clair, for shooting at him, serves 61 days in jail. She it comes out and she's now a 44-year-old convicted felon. Nobody knows exactly what she does after her prison sentence. It's possible that she lived off money made in the racket. Mm-hmm. Or at the expense of friends and associates. She seemed to have a very, you know, a solid... Uh, she did, yes. She died in 1969 um, in Central Islip, New York. She, Although she dies in what was called a mental institution, this does not n- necessarily mean that she had a mental illness. Um, but just that this was a hospital nearby. An institution, that she, yeah. yeah. Um, in 1997, there was a movie made called Hoodlum... And Cicely Tyson played Stephanie Sinclair. Ah. So um, the there is a Wikipedia page about her, but it has some very different information to that which I found in the book. Which account is true? I really do not know. Um, but there was other um, stories which were really quite unpleasant about her possibly being raped by the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and a variety of other things which Shirley Stewart makes no mention of and I don't know whether I mean like as I said at the beginning the book is called The World of Stephanie St. Clair rather than just an autobiography it's it's not a straight autobiography and I don't know whether because um, I don't know whether she wanted to cast her in a certain light and so didn't mention certain stories or whether there's just no evidence for them so whichever whichever way it was I still think that um, what a woman what a gal. Oh, Stephanie, cheers. Stephanie, you were a pleasure. Well done. Well Never done. Never a chore. Right. Okay. 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 Are you ready, Tuts? I am. Right. Bette Midler. Oh, yes, we love her. And Barbara Streisand. Oh, yes, we love her. Were born on this same day, a year apart. Mm hmm. Or Whoopi Goldberg worked as a beautician in a mortuary. Ya Odenine. Oh, nah. Oh, nah. <laughs> oh, yes, love. <laughs> okay, where to begin? Where to begin? Perfectly possible that Bet and Barbs could have been born a year apart. As you like to call them when you're on the phone to them in your WhatsApp yeah. group. Yeah, we do have one. Pinging away all the time. I have to turn it off sometimes. Girls, leave, leave me alone. Me. <laughs> I have an inkling that Whoopi Goldberg worked as a beautician in a morgue. And I don't know why, but it's just ringing some bells. Ringing some bells. It is. Is that where you want to go Yeah, with? I'm going to go with that one. You are correct. <laughs> oh, well done, dear. Yeah, I can't remember why I know that she about She was Whoopi a beautician Goldberg. and then she did for a time work in a mortuary. I think I might have read a... like a mini biography thing about not a bi- but like a something somewhere <laughs> what we got about the morgue years <laughs> <laughs> yes that's what that's I've read it's all coming back to that me now. classic order nine. Order nine. right 
Right. Ready? I am indeed. Buckle up. <laughs> it's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> okay, a little simple. <laughs> so who do we have today? So we have Violet Sabo. Okay. Nothing like a slightly tricky surname. We love them here. Oh, yeah, we do. Um, so Violet was born Violet Rain Elizabeth Bushel in Paris on the 26th of June 1921 um, she had a British father and a French mother and they'd met in wartime France okay and he was a soldier over there obviously okay um, she was their only daughter but she did have four brothers so she was one of, of five okay look at me with my mouth oh yeah can't catch me out anyway <laughs> under double figures <laughs> Um, so the family were obviously living in Paris at the time and I believe then the family had to slightly split up and I think Violet went to live with an aunt somewhere else in France but eventually they all moved to London um, during sort of as a result of the Great Depression I guess Okay. um, when Violet is around 11 and they moved to 8 Burnley Road in Brixton hmm um, she was an active, lively, rather tomboyish girl, um, and her peers at school obviously considered her somewhat exotic because she was completely fluent in French, as you would. Um, and in fact, by the age of 14, she had a job working for a French corsetière in Kensington. How very posh, darling. How very posh. Um, the family were all very close and they got on incredibly well. The only problem was that her father couldn't speak any French and everybody else was fluent. So sometimes he would feel a little left out if they oh. were conversing en français. Mm. Um, and I think, in fact, she, she argued with him quite a lot. Like I say, they were close. There were no problems. And I think she did at one point um, run away to France, as you would. I mean, why not? Might yeah. as well. Um, in 1940, when she's aged around 19, Violet joins the Women's Land Army, hmm. um, where she engages in thrilling pursuits such as strawberry picking <laughs> and also working in various armaments factories in I London. I was going to say, I, surely there's some guns involved Yeah, somewhere. I just like the fact that it starts off with strawberry picking. Cause yeah. to get the Ease them in gently. Yeah, get the important stuff out of the way. Yeah. Um, it's in this year on... Um, a Bastille Day parade mm. that she meets Etienne Sabot. He sounds he's a he. He yeah. sounds sexy. He does sound sexy, right? Yeah. Etienne, mm-hmm. who was a French soldier of Hungarian descent. Even sexier. Name, even sexier. And the two fell madly in love and they married very quickly, despite the fact that Violet was nineteen and Etienne was thirty one. Okay. I mean it's not too bad a gap. Um after they were married, Violet went to work as a telephonist and Etienne returned to the war where he saw action in Senegal, South Africa and Syria. Violet was bored by her job um, at the GPO and she then joined the Auxiliary Territorial Service where she trained as a gunner. Now the guns come in. Now the guns come so in. So pleased we've got guns. Yeah. Um, however, this employment was short-lived because she found out she was pregnant. Oh, dear. Um, and in June of 1942, Violet gives birth to their daughter, Tanya. However, okay. the joy was somewhat short-lived, as in October of 1942, Etienne was killed in North Africa at the Second oh, no. Battle of El Alamein, having never met his daughter. Oh, no. I know. For his sacrifice, he was, and here we go with this word again that I can never pronounce, 
posthumously. 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 Why do I have a problem with that? I don't know. After he died. You're so good with words. I know. It's just that one. <laughs> it's like Mother and Frothy. Um, he was uh, awarded the Croix de Guerre. Yes. Yes. Um, so, yes, for his, his sacrifice, he was awarded that. Now, after Etienne's death, Violet joins the SOE, the Special Operations Executive. Does Violet get violent? Yeah, <laughs> she does. Look Good. At you. You've been planning on saying that for ages. No, I have to Really, really. <laughs> um, and whether or not she joined the um, SOE as a direct reaction to Etienne's death and uh, wanting yeah. vengeance, um, or whether it was due to a chance meeting with a recruiter, is something that we seems shall to never di- know. Well, there's differing stories. There's a story mm-hmm. that she met somebody who. Um, you know, wanted her to join up, and there are others where she was like, "Right, I've had enough of this. They've killed my husband. I've got a daughter. I need yeah. to make this world better." Um, the SOE had been set up by Churchill to put Allied troops behind enemy lines, and in fact, um, Noor. I was Elliot saying Khan, this is sounding yeah was similar was um, in the SOE. So that's mm. where we might have heard of it before. Violet was a fairly obvious choice to join. She was fluent in French. Yes. She'd trained even for a couple of weeks as a gunner. And she, you know, as I'd said before, she was known as a little bit of a tomboy. So With she was outstanding quite... strawberry picking skills. Yes. What more could you want? Just Get throw them at Hitler. Get over to France <laughs> and pick some of them strawberries <laughs> and it'll all be good. Um, so, yeah, she was a clear choice to join. Um, reports note that she was physically a physically tough, self-willed girl and also not easily rattled. Oh, I'd like That's... someone to say that about me. Well, you asked this about something else. I'm going to have to write all these things down. And then I'll just slip them Have you the not been taking notes? Well, not quite. But luckily we've got all this recorded. Um, she, At the time she joins the SOE, she's living um, with her parents in Brixton. And so they were able to look after her daughter, Tania, um, while she was training. Now, God, training sounds pretty tough. I'm not going to lie. Okay. I know they're preparing you for a war, but she has to go to a number of places in the UK right. where they teach you different skills in different places. So she went to Leicester for this, for somewhere else for that. And you do kind of think in the war where there's enough sort of disruption, moving people around to all these yeah, different places. Is that places, really helpful? No, I don't know. I wouldn't have thought so. Anyway, she goes to all these different places to have these skills kind of honed before the final finishing school at Bewley or Bioli. Bolio. No, it's Bewley. I know, but people, I remember at school, one of our teachers calling it Bolio. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> um, but I do like how at Bewley, um, the skills you honed there were escape and evasion, uniform recognition, communications and cryptography. Right. And you also had further weapons training. I just like the idea of escape and evasion. It's like, yeah. what do they do? Play hide and seek? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, a really intense... After that, she then had to, um, although that was the sort of finishing school, you obviously, when you were in the SOE, how did mm. they get you into France? Uh, you have to parachute in. So you have that's to learn. what I was thinking, because that's what happened to Nora, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. so you have to learn. So you have to learn those skills parachute as well. Training. So she went to Manchester, obvious choice. Um, but her first attempt at parachute, they call it jumping, diving, I don't really know. Parachuting. Parachuting, yeah. <laughs> um, she badly sprained her ankle and had to then wait, obviously, for it to heal mm. so she could try again. And it seems to be during this time that she makes her will. Okay. Um, so 
that gives you some idea that as a young woman of how old is she here 21 22 <gasps> she knows what she's potentially facing um she was a very popular member of the soe and reports say that she was adored by the men and women of the SOE, both for her courage and her endless, infectious cockney laughter. Oh, brilliant. Whilst um, another gentleman who we'll come on to in a minute called Leo Marx remembered her as a dark-haired slip of mischief. She had a cockney accent which added to her impishness. I love the thought of this cockney speaking fluent French. French. That's what I was just thinking. Just like, that just sounds like a lovely mixture. Um, in February of 1944... Violet was having trouble learning her code poem, which was the way that cryptic messages could be sent. Yeah. Each letter was assigned uh-huh. a number. And I literally wrote down here, lots of clever spy stuff here that I don't really understand. <laughs> <laughs> I think sometimes when you read things, you think, I'm sure I could at some point understand what you mean, but the way people write things, you sometimes, it just... But anyway, she'd uh, been given some... And I think each different person had a different poem so if you were caught it was never nobody ever had the same thing okay and i believe that Makes hers sense. originally was in french but the soe code master leo marx who had just referred mm. to her being this uh, impish girl with a cockney accent saw her struggling with her poem and so he gave her a new poem to try and i shall read the poem to you because it's only Ooh. short the life that i have is all that I have, and the life that I have is yours. The love that I have of the life that I have is yours and yours and yours. A sleep I shall have, a rest I shall have, yet death will be but a pause. For the peace of my years in the long green grass will be yours and yours and yours. How lovely. And quite touching when you find that Marx had written this for the woman he loved, who died the year before in a plane crash. I know. And apparently Violet was very touched when she found out that was the meaning of the poem. Anyway, her first mission commences in April 1944 when she's dropped in Cherbourg in France and she had the code name Louise. What a daring code name. Nothing wrong with it, but you think, oh, oh, if I was going to be a spy, I'd want to be—I'd probably want to be called Violet. Yeah, right? actually, just keep your name. I think I asked Mum to call you Louise. Yeah, I know. There you go. Well, you didn't get your way as no. usual. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, she gets dropped in Cherbourg, and here she poses as a French secretary who is from Le Havre. Which yes, Le Havre. Um, and I think that the reason she um was meant to be from Le Havre was because at that time you know the in German occupied France there were only certain places you could go okay. and if she got dropped off at Cherbourg you I think if you came from one of the other because mm-hmm. you've got to remember they're on the coast and yes. so it was limited movement mm-hmm. but she could get away with saying she was from the next town okay. if she got dropped there um and she was paired up with a colleague named Philip Lever or Lever, and their mission was to go over there and try and see what had happened to this network of spies and mm-hmm. resistance fighters because there'd been a lot of German arrests and there hadn't been much contact and they didn't know what was going on. Okay. She often had to travel to some areas alone as Philip was already known to the Germans and in some towns his face was on wanted posters okay. so a lot of this mission she had to go and do by herself by herself um 
and it was very clear that the network was damaged beyond repair um, and they couldn't really do um, they couldn't really do much other than gather as little intelligence as they could and um, so it became very clear that the damage to the network was uh, beyond repair and it was at this point that Violet then goes to Paris to meet up with Philip and while she's there she does a little bit of shopping okay <laughs> and I put let's not forget that at this time she's still only 22 with okay. a young child at home she treated herself to a dress that cost 8,500 francs telling the agent that it was the first lovely dress she'd ever had Aww. I know right um and yeah, whilst this this initial mission was not the success they hoped, well, it was a shopping mission. It was a shopping mission. It was sort of fairly successful. <laughs> Pat yourself on the back for that one, Violet. Um, so whilst they they weren't able to find out much about the network other than it wasn't really there anymore, they were um, able to give a lot of information on areas where the Nazis had factories producing war material, which they didn't have before and so British bombers could concentrate okay. their efforts on those so areas it was intelligence that was, they were able to offer yes more than, rather okay. than than much more so that is in April her second mission commences on around the 7th or 8th of June uh-huh. now you have to remember that this time and this is important to remember well first of all it's just shortly after Tanya's second birthday oh. but it's also like literally within days of D-Day happening okay and so she's parachuted back into france in or around limoges Mm -hmm. and it's unclear if this um this second um parachute jump if she actually damages her ankle or not okay that'll become important and the purpose of this second mission is sort of building on the first and what they wanted to do was create a new network in the same sort of area to to build up Mm -hmm. all this kind of um intelligence and get the resistance to join with them again and this network was to be called salesman two number two as in the first uh network that they'd gone out to look for had been called salesman okay it's all um all linked so yeah that's about the 7th or 8th of june now on the morning of the 10th of june Violet, and there's going to be a lot of men here called Jacques. Well, there's going to be two, but okay. that's more than one. So I'm, <laughs> I'm already confused. I'm just on tenterics. I'm just waiting because I know how it went with Noor. I don't know if I can go through that again. Yeah. Oh, God. All right. Okay. It's all right. God, we really have to have these drinks non-alcoholic. <laughs> it has gone past 12. <laughs> um, so, yeah, on the morning of the 10th of June, Violet was sent to go and liaise with Jacques Poirot. Not Poirot. Not Poirot, okay, right. Who was a resistance leader. Uh-huh. Violet should have travelled by bicycle, as was intended. It was seen as less um, suspicious. Uh-huh. And also, I didn't know this, but Germans had forbidden the French to use cars after D-Day. They oh. banned them from using cars. Oh, okay. However, a young resistance leader called Jacques Dufour uh-huh. insisted on driving her the short journey, putting her bicycle in the back, and her gun in the front. Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, en route, they picked up another resistance fighter called Jean Briard. Unfortunately, no one was aware, due to poor intelligence, that at this time, the 2nd SS Panzer Division were making their way north. <clears throat> 
and as they are driving along, they notice the German roadblock too late. Barrio, it's fine, it's fine, be brave. Okay, I'll be brave. Barrio was able to escape. He didn't have a gun on him. Or a bicycle. Or a bicycle. (laughs) Um, So Jacques slowed the car down so that he could, like, jump out. All right. Um, And Dufour, so Jacques Dufour and Violet were engaged in a gunfight with the Germans. He insists that she make a run for it while he covers her and she refuses to leave him. Okay. They were able to make a run for it together Mm. and there are various uh, different accounts of how this went on. So I've gone with the majority that sort of meets Mm -hmm. up from the different sources. What seems to happen is as they try to escape, Violet twists her bad ankle. Oh dear. And she insists that Dufour leave her behind and he should make a run for it alone. He reluctantly agrees and she covers him, firing, whilst he runs off. Oh my gosh. She manages to fight the soldiers for 30 minutes single-handed, killing at least one corporal and injuring many others. Also, in the crossfire, some poor French woman walks out in the middle of it and gets shot and it seems to be quite, um, quite violent. Eventually, she runs out of ammunition and is caught. But there are, as I said, there are very different versions as to exactly what happened. There, it is interesting, or maybe not so, that uh, the Nazis didn't record this. Mm. Some people say it's because they were embarrassed it was a woman. Some people say it because it didn't really happen that way. They were just caught. There wasn't really a gun, gun yeah, battle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there is also a report that one Nazi officer was so impressed that a woman had managed to fight these men for 30 minutes that he walks up to her and puts a cigarette in her mouth to light it only for her to spit it out and spit in his face <gasps> insisting he unhand her and let her have her own fags <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of like things I love the brashness about her sort of balls. well she is a French speaking cockney she can do <laughs> anything she chooses yeah. um, Violet at the time gives her name as Vicky Taylor Right. Um, and it's interesting to note that this is probably a bit of wordplay because Zabo is the Hungarian word for Taylor. Okay. Um, so she is now obviously being captured. There are reports that she was tortured and sexually assaulted after being turned over mm. to the Gestapo. I had a feeling that was coming. Yeah. She's then transferred to Paris um, before the Germans. And I, I once again, I didn't realise... with was so concerned about such um i suppose an important woman although you think this is only her second mission she's a member of the soe and they've got her and she's quite brave they're so sort of worried that the british or the allies are going to come after her that they have to move her because they think she they want to keep moving her so she's hard to find and this is then in august she's sent to reem rem by train She's shackled to an SOE wireless operator called Denise Bloch, B-L-O-C-H. Oh, I think I've, yeah. I've heard of her. Yeah, yeah. you probably have. Um, during the journey, the Allies mount an air raid on the train and the guards are terrified and all flee. Violet mm. and Denise manage to get water from a toilet to give to the male prisoners who were in cages in an attempt to boost their morale and inspire them. Wow. The train eventually reaches Rem, Rem, and the prisoners are then sent to Saarbrücken, which is a camp. Yes. Um, and after roughly 10 days, Violet and many other women are then sent to Ravensbrück, which was a really notorious camp uh, where during the course of the war over 92,000 women died. 
and wow. it was a camp where disease, starvation and violence were rife. It took them 18 days to get there and had a huge effect both mentally and physically on all the women. Um, whilst in Ravensbrook, Violet does plan to escape many a time, but to no avail. Whether or not it was too hard to escape, well, it's obviously going to be very hard, but for an intelligent woman, who knows? But you have to bear in mind some of the things I'm going to tell you that happened in this camp that might give you a good reason why perhaps she didn't have time to. Okay. took part in back-breaking physical work whilst mm-hmm. desperately trying to keep up the morale of her fellow prisoners. She saved the life of a Belgian resistance courier and she managed to contact male POWs from a nearby camp okay. who would send the women some of their food rations as they were being treated far better than the women were. <sighs> um, Violet and some of the other prisoners were then sent to another camp called Konigsberg in October of 1944 mm-hmm. where the work was even tougher felling trees, clearing rock-hard icy ground for the construction of an airfield and digging trenches for a narrow gorge railway. Violet volunteers for the tree felling as it would give you protection from the cold, being amongst the forest. The women were forced to stand for roll call for up to five hours each day before work, where some of them literally froze to death. You must remember that Violet is still dressed in the light summer's clothes from the day of her capture in June, when they are now in October in freezing cold countryside. They slept with no blankets in frozen barracks. I don't know how much longer I can be brave. It's not much longer to be brave. (laughs) (laughs) Is it going to get cheerier? No. Oh, shit. (laughs) No, but it's important. Okay, I'm I'm stealing myself. Steal yourself. In January of 1945, Violet... Denise Block and another agent called Lillian Rolfe were recalled to Ravensbrook and on around the 19th or 20th they were put in solitary confinement. There is suspicion that there was more um, violent assaults. There is no proof of that but it's it's more than likely. On the morning of the 5th of February 1945 all three women are murdered in Execution Alley that's what it was called at Ravensbrook. Rolfe and Block were so weak and battered, they could not walk, and so were carried by stretcher. And they were all shot in the back of the head. This is the thing that really gets me. Violet is only 23. I know. See, you're teary and I'm teary. <laughs> it really gets you, doesn't it, this one? It's all right, you can cry. I'm crying. Anyway, Violet was the second woman to be awarded the George Cross for bravery, which her daughter Tanya collects. <laughs> no, right, stop crying. On the 17th of December, 1946. The bloody war is over by then. I know, but it's a... I can't still say posthumously. Posthumously. <laughs> so, no, but what I'm saying is it's so close to the bloody end of the war. Well, it's unfortunately... I didn't write this down, but... Oh, God, what are you going to tell no, me No, I'm going to tell you that... When they were taken to Ravensbrook just before they're shot, it's at the time when a lot of women are taken on those sort of death marches. But you have to remember, some of them only had to survive a couple of weeks before the Russians came in. Anyway, so she receives the George Cross for bravery, which her daughter collects. And I think at that point, her daughter may only be four, 
Oh, oh God, for God's sake. She's also awarded the Cardiger by the French government in 1947, along with the Medal de la Résistance in 1973. She and Etienne remain the most decorated married couple of World War II. And there is a film about her called Carve Her Name with Pride, which I haven't watched just because I didn't have time to, but I have actually got at home to watch, which was made in 1958, starring Virginia McKenna. Interestingly, there is a blue plaque for her in oh, Brixton. So there bloody well should be. Blue so, plaque, is that what she freaking well gets? Well, Good Lord. She is one of the most decorated women, but I know it's a sad one, but an important one. I know, but I can't believe you made me do this without alcohol. You should have warned me. It's <laughs> fine. You're allowed to have emotions. And I do fear, maybe if you had had alcohol, you might be crying a bit more. <laughs> that can be the truth of it. So I think, oh my Violet, goodness. What I'm literally woman. drinking my own tears, people. <laughs> well done, Violet. God, I... I Sorry. No, it's, it's fine, but you think, oh, a little cheers and a well done... You, uh, I know, it's not much, is it?